welcome back to episode 107 of Following Noadon, Stormlight Podcast. This week, we're doing chapters 19 and ending part one, and then doing our three interludes, one, two, and three. We have some first-time point-of-view characters for our interludes, and they're not random people from the Pure Lake or random Ardents that we've never heard of. Paul, how are you? I'm I'm good. I'm really excited, oh, as always, whenever we're uh, entering into interludes. So excited to look at our first batch of interludes in Rhythm of War. Elliot? I, too, I look forward to the interludes. They're a fun little take a break, learn about something else, moments, or get an, an interesting perspective. I was kind of hoping for another one of the, like, out of the blue seems completely random and irrelevant to everything we're talking about interlude. We didn't really get one of those, but that's okay. I still enjoyed them. All three of them seem fairly relevant. Do we have two words to summarize episode one Oh seven, uh, Paul? Uh, yes. My two words are extremist and fence. Extremist and fence. Elliot. I have anticipation and innocence. All right, well, let's use these four words and talk about Rhythm of War. Uh, Paul, you can go first. All righty. Uh, first off is extremist, and that is directly connected to Taravangian. Uh, Taravangian will use whatever means possible to reach a goal. I guess you could say it in a nice way. Um, but not only that, he will do whatever it costs, but he won't go one step past that if he feels it's wrong. Um, he, he mentions it, I believe, in the the last interlude about like he wouldn't kill one person past the necessary amount, but it doesn't matter if that necessary amount is a million people. Like he doesn't care about that, but he right. won't go one person past it. Um, and so extreme, very extreme be- behavior and and thoughts on that. Uh, the other one is fence, and that's kind of a silly way of explaining things. Um, our Jean Anat interlude. We learn that she's kind of halfway in the physical realm and halfway in the cognitive realm. And so I was saying she's just kind of on the fence there. Um, as well as kind of a lot of comparisons in Sil's interlude as well between like the dark brain and light brain. Or like, yeah, all, all sorts of stuff like that. So, uh, Elliot? So my first word was anticipation, which I picked for the anticipation of Teravangian's betrayal. And there's so many little bits and pieces here in both chapter 19 and in the Teravangian interlude that are just building up to what seems like it's going to be another huge betrayal. And I say another because... It seems like this keeps happening to to Dalinar, which we can talk about when we get when we get there. And then 
Innocence as my second one for primarily Sybil. I the the interlude chapter from her perspective was really unique and different from a lot of the other ones we've seen before. And it really for me showcased her her innocence, her her purity, her it's it's naivete, but in like the most positive sense you can think of. It's just I I kept coming back to that as I'm in her head for a little bit here. She is just such the the picture of wanting to do good and being so innocent about it. Yeah. All right. I have to say it now. The out of all the Stormlight books, seeing Silfrena as a point of view character was what I got most excited about for any interlude. That I don't know if it actually lived up to that excitement. It's a good interlude, but I was so excited to get a Silfrena uh, point of view point of view interlude. But are you the one that flips through the whole book when you first pick it up to read like what all the point of views are going to be from the different sections and the interludes? No, no, but Brandon Sanderson on release of rhythm of war released early chapters. And this is one of the early chapters that he released was the silver interlude. And he censored the part where she mentions that he's no longer a soldier and has decided to become a surgeon um, because the, they released or he released the Silfrena interlude before uh, um, before we we knew that. So gotcha. Uh, so yeah, I I knew that going into to Rhythm of War actually. All right, Chapter Nineteen, the end of Part One. The first part of this chapter is uh, her talking to her scientists, her her laboratory. Scholars, um, in in your theory, and they've got a couple interesting things in the works. Did you guys were you guys interested in this at all, or is, is this boring? Uh, yes, absolutely. I was say, I'll probably let Elliot handle this one. <laughs> it was. I mean, I'm sure it was neat. Engineering with Elliot segment two. Go. Uh oh! Careful what you ask for there. I th- these scenes are fun because they're getting to explore with magical powers and how to use them to create cool stuff. It's like it, it's like if a, a group of engineers in our world had been handed electricity for the first time and be like, "Oh man, think of all the things we can do with this!" And it, it's fun to watch them, you know, figure out what exactly they can do with it. And these these what seem like fairly simple applications of just directing force in a, in a different direction. It seems simple, but then when you start to think about it, like how you can combine that with the other abilities that you have to create all these gadgets is really cool. And it's, it's like, that's what the, the core of engineering is, is here's all the things you, here's all the tools you have, go figure out how to design a, system that can do something that no one has thought of before like that is the, the that is the ideal playground for an engineer so it's super fun do you want to talk about their little uh 
Iron Man gauntlet that they invented here? The Iron Man gauntlet is actually not as interesting as what they talk about later when they get to the weights going up and down the the chasm. But yep. the the gauntlet is the gauntlet is pretty cool if fairly simple, right? She's got a a box that she can just kind of hold on to. Yeah, almost like a gauntlet. And I think at some point she talks about, "Hey, go design it like a crossbow or something. Make it look cool." Is her, you know, thing at the end, which that's also a, you know, important thing as an engineer. It might do exactly what you need it to do, but it needs to look cool or no one's going to fund your project. That, <laughs> that is important. Things still have to look cool. She can take that gauntlet and she can point it in any way she wants and then press the button to kind of engage the, the paired fabrials. And then the soldiers that they're just, you know, the, the hired muscle can drag a weight across the floor and that force is just translated into the gauntlet that Navani's holding, so it drags her across the floor in whatever direction she's pointing it. The the breakthrough here in this scene, though, is the the directionality of it. Before it was always they are exactly paired; they move exactly how the other object does. Now she can turn it off, point it in the direction she wants to go, turn it back on, and then move in that direction. So that has some pretty big implications for specifically their flying, you know, fortress. The the fourth bridge. So that'll, that'll unlock a few things for them for sure to be able to do that. The part that actually made me more interested was when she got over to the, how do we, how do we conquer the manpower question here? This brings, you know, up some interesting questions. Well, you can have two soldiers drag a weight across the floor to pull Navani, but if you need to pull your flying fortress through the sky you're going to need a couple thousand of those. So that gets very expensive and, and complicated fast. So she has this idea she's cooked up of dropping weights down a like endless shaft. They can tie up these weights, put your fabric on there, and then you just lower it down the shaft, use gravity to do all your work for you, drop this weight down the shaft, and then that is paired to your, your fourth bridge, which then pulls it across the sky. Genius. We actually have these in our world right now. They're called gravity batteries, and they're actually really interesting. What you can do is you can store electricity in potential energy, in gravity like that. You can use, let's say you're collecting solar energy. You're storing up a bunch of electricity. If you don't need to use it now, you need a way to store it. Well, you can store it in a a chemical battery, but that has some, some difficulties. You can also use that energy to power a motor to lift a weight. And then that weight is sitting up high. And so when you want that energy, that electricity back, now you just slowly lower that weight back down, this time powering a generator. And that generator will recreate your electricity for you. And so then you can go power what you want later. Gravity battery. Navani has just designed exactly that in our in our uh, Stormlight world, which is super cool. Yeah, well, I'm learning a lot about a real world and how it works. If you've ever taken a physics class, potential and kinetic energy are the the two kind of forces at at work here that mm-hmm. they're manipulating to to get done what they need to get done. They they find a shaft on the second second story of your ethereal. No, the twentieth story of of your theory and 
it goes down way past the basement is what they say it goes it delves into the mountain that they're that they're on top of all the way down to sea level maybe you know like as far down as you can as you can go it goes that far so they can certainly utilize that for what Navani's cooked up do you guys have any thoughts on how on what this room was was originally designed for um that they found or is that did she just un- uncover the original design that's a good question i'm not sure it it might be exactly what this was used for before but it also might not be we've we've already seen that there's some weird stuff about urethiru i think this was actually in one of the chapters from our previous episode last week that there's some bizarre stuff where there's like rooms that you can't get to and there's like hallways with pipes that run right across the walkway, like right in front of where you want to walk. Just like weird stuff that you're like, why would you ever build something like that? And so this could easily be one of those of, I I have no idea what this purpose was for originally. They have young kids crawl around the air ducts of your theory. And yeah, they find rooms where there's no door. All the only way you can get to them is through these, you know, two foot by two foot, air ducts that they've had these kids crawl through. So I actually have a theory about this. I, I know I'm jeopardizing all the, the mic airtime here, Paul. So I apologize. You'll have to talk later. Uh, this is, <laughs> the, this is a big, uh, episode of engineering and, and, uh, plotting of the city. So it's, it's mostly you, you got it. Don't feel bad. <laughs> This is less engineering nerdiness and more back into the the geeky side. I'm trying to figure out how this works or what what kind of mystical magic might be going on here. I'm wondering, I'm starting to wonder, if when this tower, your theory, was fully powered, when it was in its heyday, could it, like, reconfigure itself actively? Like, rooms and hallways aren't always where they are put, you know, maybe they change, maybe they move, maybe they, I don't know, maybe the tower is more of like a living thing in that it can, I don't know, readjust itself. And so when it died, when the spread that powered it was removed, it just kind of like freezed in that moment of whatever it was at. And so maybe most of the tower makes most sense, but then other sections of it, maybe were in the process of like changing. And so that's why you have a room that you can't get to was in that moment, when you turn the tower off, yeah, you couldn't get to it. But maybe normally the tower would like open up that room when you needed access to it, or you could, you know, manipulate it such that you could shut that off and it was like a vault or something for like a, a bank. You know, I don't know. I, those are just some of the ideas I was coming up with of why the tower can be so weird. I've had a theory about the living tower as you're talking about that. What if it talks about it that it's an, an eight tiered cake? Uh, basically so there's there's eight mega tiers divided into 10 floors each so no sorry 18 um 18 tiers of 10 floors so every 10 floors there is a balcony that you can go out and walk around the city on and um and every and there's 18 of those um but I was wondering, what if it could rotate? What if, like, 
a group of 10 floors could like spin, you know, and then open up other doors and close other doors like a Zelda puzzle. That guys, would make a lot of sense. You guys yeah, tracking I kind of, Yes. Totally. I kind of figured there would be like, if this is all powered or whatever, that there's a lot more that just would. It, this sounds very basic, but like it would just make sense. Like it, it would be like, okay, yeah, you just twist this, and then all of a sudden, this room that has nothing or no entrance or whatever, like, has stuff. I don't know. Yeah. Are we going to turn on the tower, quote-unquote, before the end of the book? For the end of the book, I would say yes. Okay. Before this set of interludes, I probably would have guessed no. But there's a couple references here that I think have changed my mind. We we aren't quite sure what powers the the tower, but we've had reference to the sibling and that that might be a spren potentially like an equivalent to a night watcher yeah. type spren that might be powering the, the tower, but we've been told or maybe hinted at that the sibling is dead. I was naively, I should know better than this by now thinking like, Oh, dead gone. Okay. Can't power the tower up. Uh, foolish of me. And a couple of the characters in these section chapters reminded me of that. Uh, we're not talking about a human. We're talking about a spren. And we know that death for a spren is a little different, perhaps. And so uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to find it in my notes right off the cuff here. But somewhere in one of these chapters, somebody references the fact to of if the sibling were to be brought back or something like that. I don't remember if it's Jean ja not. Jean not, it is. Yeah, something like if they're if they're able to awaken the sibling, and I'm like over here doing a face palm, like, oh, duh, the sibling is dead, but we also might be able to bring the sibling back at some point. So all that to say, yes, I think we might just be able to turn the tower on before the end of the book. And we haven't talked about the end of chapter one nineteen, but where where this part ends is kind of a floor map of what's about or what the plan is about to happen, uh, the Fused are planning to attack Urethiru. And one of the motivations for that is we need to attack the tower before they turn it on, before they resurrect the sibling. That is, that's one of the Raboniel was, was talking about that in a couple episodes ago. I, I think I... I will say so. I, I do think we're gonna see the tower or your theru activated in this book. Honestly, I'm hoping it's not like the big Sanderlanch thing, though. Right. Like I think this is gonna be really neat when this is turned on, um, and it's all powered up and everything. But it'll be really cool. There'll be a lot of fun imagery and fun things that we'll get to point out. But I don't think it's gonna be. It's not going to carry that much weight for me. Right. I'm not going to be like, oh my gosh, you're a Thero's back online. Like, we've got him now. You know, like, there's not that much significance tied to it other than great. Proud right. of y'all, you know. So I'm kind of hoping that 
honestly, sooner rather than later, if it happens, this book. There's the the game plan at the end of chapter 19 is that there's a meeting and uh, Sigzil is there as the head of the Windrunners and there's a the coalition is there to back uh, Dalinar's plan to invade Emul and and fight in Emul. They have decided that retaking Alethkar right now is not smart and they need to secure other parts of Roshar first and then talk about you know winning back their homeland so they decide on Imul they're going to go to Imul and the coalition all backs him including Teravangian which we'll get back to here in a second but what 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 are the fused planning from a few episodes ago do you guys remember this They want to get into Urethiru and use the the Fabriel, the Tower, the Pillar to do what seems like the opposite of its intended purpose and use it to repress Stormlight powers and not Voidlight powers. And how are they planning on getting in the... Well, how are they planning on successfully getting in the Tower? Who needs to not be there? They need Dalinar and Yasna distracted. Correct. So I don't think it mattered where they decided they were going to go. Teravangian was going to back them no matter what, as long as they go somewhere. And Yasna and Dalinar said, oh, we're going to go fight in Imul. And Teravangian says, great, you've got all of my soldiers. There you go. And with his interlude and with in chapter 19 it's it's stated that Yakovet's about to change sides and Teravangian's willing to surrender himself for that cause and save Carbronth and support Odium so uh, it doesn't matter where Dalinar and Yasna are about to go but Dalinar and Yasna are about to go to Imul leaving who in the tower can we do a head count real quick Navani Navani Kaladin. Okay. Some other people? You know. Mm-hmm. Renarin? Are maybe? other bridge four people here? E- so the Windrunners assumedly are going to Amul, but, you know, th- there's probably going to be some that stay in your Thero. And, and I guess we haven't talked about this, but where are Shallan and Adolin going? So they are off to Shadesmar to go on their special mission to oh, go visit right. the Honor Spren. They are. At Sigsil's request, they have dispatched a envoy to Lasting Integrity, an appeal to the Honor Spren that w- we need you, we need Windrunners, because their supply of Honor Spren has stopped. And so they're going to go to Lasting Integrity uh, to try to appeal to them. Which I gotta say was awfully convenient for Shalon. Shalon had been. That's the question that I was having the outline here. Why does why Shalon so hesitant to go? Because that's exactly where Marais wants her. Right. 
you can I can totally see what's happening in in Shalon's head. She's like, oh my gosh, that's the perfect opportunity. <clears throat> She's torn over. Do I jump on this? Do I follow Marie's directions or or do I not? But if Sigzel hadn't come up with this idea of, oh, we need to send an envoy to lasting integrity, how exactly was Shalon gonna pull that off? Of like, hey, sorry guys, I need to go on a journey. I'll be back later. This was the perfect opportunity for her to jump on and be like, oh, yeah, yep, send me. I also have a side quest there as well, so uh, that'll be efficient. Isn't it nice when your side quest lines up with your story quest and you can turn them in at the same time? It is. That is a satisfying feeling. Yeah, so that's... Shalon and Navani notes that Shalon is really hesitant to go to Lasting Integrity because in her head she's like... Am I just a pawn of the ghost bloods this entire time? Like, do I actually have free will here? Or am I just is everything preset and I'm have to do this? Like the perfect opportunity arises and I have to go. Do you guys remember what she's doing in lasting integrity? Paul, do you remember? For for Marais specifically. Um Last time they talked, I remember them talking all about investiture. Is she? Mm-hmm. Uh, she no, gives. I forgot that was like two episodes ago, wasn't it? Yeah, a couple. She gives her a bounty. Elliot's word okay. was bounty hunter, and the name he gives her is. I'm not about to spoil this, right? The Restaris. name he gives her is Restaris. Yes, thank you. And he tells her, when you find him, you will know what to do. Oh, that's right. And that's what he says. And she's like, what? (laughs) Can you you explain that? He's like, no, you got it. Which makes me think she's going to recognize him at the time when she gets there. And that will tell her. But that might not be true. I don't know. I'm still holding to my theory that... I don't think Murray's actually wants Shalon to do anything. I think Ristaris is going to know what to do when he sees, we're assuming it's a he. Is it a he? I don't know. When they see Shalon. Ristaris, the alias is a he at least. And who is Ristaris? I, I think. Uh, Ristaris is uh, Shalon's fourth personality, right? <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> R- Ristaris is the leader of the Sons of Honor uh, who is tied to Amaram and Gafilar so in theory he's the and they've just killed ELA as well or ELA has died or whatever um, and so in theory Ristaris is the last like heading member of the Sons of Honor Okay, so we've got we've got our lineups. We've got Adolin and Shalon going back to Shadesmar. We have Kaladin, Navani. Where's Zeth going? Do we know? He's is still there. Is, right? is he staying in yeah. a cell? Or is he going with I Dalinar? So. I don't know. Um and then yeah, Dalinar is taking an army to Amul with Yasna. So that's our split. Do we know where Lyft is? Does it matter? Lyft was going to go to Shith. Edge Dancers. So they were going to send her to, to Shadesmar, but everybody in the coalition was like, we, I mean, 
we can't send lift right she's you know lift so they send good godeki um an, an older edge dancer dude to go with uh to go with adolin and shallan so yeah i'm not sure where lift is going but anybody to, else important to answer your question it absolutely matters where lift is it also matters where risen is but i'm assuming we're not going to know that Yeah, I think that's everybody important. And there's an impending attack coming on Urethiru, um, which the the plan for the fused is get to the pillar and use it to suppress the radiance there. Um, that's that's the fused plan going into into part two here. Any any closing thoughts for part one before we talk about our interludes? Paul, I have some thoughts on the kind of general theme or what are some of the, the bigger picture takeaways I got from part one, but do you have anything to say before I do that? No, not necessarily about this uh, chapter. I think my interests were was much heavy, much more heavily in the, the prior chapters. Um, so yeah, if you want to give your overall part one wrap-up, I always love hearing these. I I actually struggled with this part probably more than any of the other parts of the previous three books. I, I sat for a while to try and think of what the, you know, what's a, what's a one sentence theme I can use to pull together this, this section. And it, it was tough. It was tough. But the, what I ultimately came up with was if I had to put it in one word, I would put it as obsolescence, but I think it's, it's more nuanced than, than that. I think the, some of the the similarities I was seeing across the different storylines that we we have had to do with kind of dealing with change, dealing with the fact that hey, we just we're, we're a year on from these earth shattering events that happened, and the world is very different than it was before. Our our characters are having to deal with different enemies, people who we thought were going to be important all of a sudden aren't necessarily how do we move past what we were dealing with before and face the new challenges ahead? That's, that's kind of the, the overarching theme for me. And I thought it was summed up fairly nicely in a quote that we, that we get back in chapter three. So very, very close to the beginning. It's actually just kind of a random guy. I think it's a sailor. He he's an old sailor who's talking to Navani, and they're talking about like fabrials and flying ships. And this guy's like an old crusty sailor. He's like, oh my gosh, everything's so different. He says this: I can't decide if I'm glad to be old enough to wish my world a fond farewell, or if I envy the young lads who get to explore this new world. It feels like we're at a turning point. So many things have become obsolete, and they have to deal with the what's what's new. I think of Kaladin. Kaladin's having to change. He's going from his his identity as a soldier is obsolete. And he's going to move on and be a surgeon, something new. Liren is facing the same thing. He thinks he's obsolete because there's these new magical powers everywhere. Hopefully, he's not going to be. Our heralds might be completely obsolete at this point. 
they we thought they were going to be the key to everything. Turns out they're all insane and the oath pact is broken and they can die and they may not be as important as we thought. I think Taravangian's diagram is obsolete at this point. I'm cheating a little bit and reaching a little bit into yeah. the interlude for this. I'll give it to you though. Not not completely though. I think we knew this a little bit already before we got to that interlude, but the the diagram seems done. It's he's he's made his play and now it's going to be a new world and and Taravangian might might die. He might be done here or maybe he won't be and he'll have to adapt and move on to what his life after the diagram looked like. So the best the best where I could come up with was was obsolete for that, but but turning point I think might be another another good way to say it too. Yep, a big fan of all that. Nice job. Wow. That's a big word. Yes. All right. Silfrena interlude. When I told you guys this off the air that there was a Silfrena interlude, you guys were excited, but you were also a little concerned of like, is she just going to be, you know, spinning in circles the whole time? Like, is this going to be actually <laughs> constructive? And there is the, there is a fair share of that that she does do a, a quite a bit of windsurfing in this in this interlude. But there, there's also constructive feedback here. So, what did you guys get out of this interlude? It, it is exactly what I expected from a from a sill interlude. There, there's exactly those moments where she's like, "I wonder what it's like to be a potato being sliced." Hmm. I'll sit here like a potato. Go ahead, slice me. Like <laughs> just goofy, <laughs> random, like totally sill stuff. And then there's also just the like heartfelt moment where she's trying to the best of her ability to be able to understand Kaladin. Where she's like, I I want to know what you're going through so I can help you. Like just that completely earnest, I want to help my friend moments. Like it it was one hundred percent still. Yeah, Elliot said it really well. This is just a bunch of sill moments. Like the the goofy silly sill silfrena moments and then the like more serious, like, concern for Kaladin moments, um, and that's where she talks a good bit about this, like, dark brain versus light brain concept, which she talks about Kaladin, which I assume is, I mean, it's just her way of kind of describing his, like, depression, I imagine, and, like, whatever he's really angsty with himself, and whenever he's not. Um, yeah, there was a lot of really amusing stuff. Um, and she's talking to the Stormfather for a good bit of this too, right? Which yes, I thought was interesting. They were just kind of hanging out together, and I was like, "That's it's just kind of a funny image in my mind." What my main takeaway from Sill and the Stormfather talking is, I mean, it's like a conversation back and forth of like three or four lines, and Sill says. Oh, we need to make sure Honor's champion is is well taken care of. And the, the Stormfather's like, "Are you sure? You're so sure that he's he's the champion? How are you sure of that?" She's like, "Oh, I just know." And that's it. Like, are we gonna? Nope, we're not gonna explain that at all. Okay, moving on. 
that did get to me a bit, Trevor. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't quite tell if I was supposed to know who they're talking about or not. Like for a second there, my head was thinking that they were talking about Kaladin or they were talking about Dalinar or someone like one of their bonded people. But I don't know. I just don't know. I'm fairly certain they're talking about Kaladin. I don't think you need to overthink that. Okay. But I now you're making me second guess it. I'm but I thought they were talking about Kaladin. It looks like Elliot's skimming. Maybe he'll know. I, I, I am gonna read this section for you because I was curious as well. I was a little confused too, because they don't name necessarily who they're talking about, because it could be Dalinar, it could be Kaladin. You're not quite sure. But I think it is Kaladin. Here here's what the Stormfather says. You are so certain that your human is the champion. The Stormfather said, I do not think the world will bend mm. to your wishes. I'm, I'm emphasizing your there a little bit, but you could read into that to say, yeah, he's talking about your bond with that human. That makes sense. Yeah, I think that's right. So, yeah, I think it's fairly safe to say that Syl is under the impression that Kaladin will be on Kaladin will be honors champion, which I would I would actually disagree with because assuming Dalinar is the one to appoint that champion, I couldn't see Dalinar picking anyone besides himself, right? Like he's not going to assign anyone that task if he was not willing to do it himself. That's the whole way of kings thing. Yes. But hasn't he like put down the whole fighting thing or whatever? Sure. But I I mean, he, I think Dalinar would choose himself out of principle, even if he has to show up with no shard plate or no shard blade. I think it may depend on how the situation goes down. In principle, yes, I agree with you. I don't think Dalinar would pass that responsibility to someone else. He would take it on himself. But what if it's very clear from the situation that Dalinar will not win? Right. If Dalinar knows I can't win this, I think he would appoint someone else in the attempt to stop Odium. Yeah. Would it be Kaladin? Maybe. Would it be Zeth? Maybe. What about I'd, Adolin? I was I was thinking about I had thought about Zeth if we're just talking about pure like you know, good old-fashioned fight of fisticuffs, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, like, Zeth with Nightblood, like, what... I don't know what's gonna beat it, you right. know? Um, but I'm imagining that there's gonna be more to it than just a a duel. Sure. Like a fair little sword fight duel, you know? Um, so I don't, I don't know what that's gonna mean. It may be Renarin. Yeah. We've talked about, um... Which think, would be super cool. We've I think talked if about Ter- how he's kind of a little piece. I think if Teravangian were to bet, he would say that Renarin's going to be honor champion. Cause yeah. Because he's has seen some... him in the diagram or whatever, right. right? Yeah. And so that has me thinking that it's going to be different from just like a, a sword fight. You know, ODM deals in powers that are way beyond just using a shard blade or whatever. So... I imagine it's going to be some kind of, not like battle of the wits, you know, but like it's it's just going to be something different, I imagine. 
I do think it's kind of funny in an ironic way that Syl is asking the Stormfather for the capacity to understand Kaladin. And she's like, can you do that to my brain? I need I need that to happen to my brain. She's asking the Stormfather for depression. If you <laughs> if you take a step back, you're just like, oh, that's kind of sad. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. I I think I sort of understood that, but I didn't really like think about it like that. This is just like, hey, do you mind? Like, can you give me some of what I'll have? What he's having, you know, yeah, like, right? <laughs> and it's about like depression. Like that's that's tough. It is tough. It's also yeah. It's it's more than than sad. It's I don't know. I relate here actually because I have a very close friend who who deals with some some really terrible depression. And there have been moments where I feel like Sill, where it's like I don't understand what you're dealing with. I wish I did. I wish I could understand what what is going on in your head so that I can help you. But in this instance. With Syl, I this does not sound like a good idea to me to to open Syl's mind to that level of like debilitating depression. I feel like that would crush so much of what she is, and this right. ties into the, my my word I was picking that innocence. She has this this purity and innocence to her, this just lightness that balances out. Kaladin's darkness, the the depression that he's he's weighed down by. If Syl were to take that on into her herself, I, that could end really badly. If 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 she gets pulled down by that, she's never had to deal with anything like that before. She's never had to deal with that crushing doubt that that Kaladin has to. I don't know that she'd make it. I don't know that she'd survive that having that weight on her yeah it's a really good point she she references her old knight she she names him i don't remember his his name but she says oh yeah he was he was old at the time of the final desolation or the, the false desolation and um he dies in battle and it kind of it wounds her to the point where she's not around in the physical realm at the time of the recreants. So she has not bound a radiant at the time of the recreants. Therefore she can maintain her spreadness by the time Kaladin comes back around. So she, she talks about her light brain versus her dark brain back, back then. And so she asks Dalinar, hey, is that is that similar? Can I relate to him that way? And Dalinar's like, I mean, you can try. I, I, I have no idea. But I, I thought that was also funny how she kind of compared that too to her like responsible brain versus her child brain, which is that, that dichotomy we were just talking about of she likes to swirl with the leaves on the wind and just enjoy that and just go do all the silly things that pop into her brain. But then there's also the other side of her brain that knows, no, I, I need to be responsible and go, you know, help Kaladin. Just kind of the, those, that tug of war 
that she's, you know, thinking about this in this, this dark versus light responsible versus child brain. It was, I, I thought it was interesting and cool. I do. I think it's kind of funny. It's kind of a tangent, but speaking of Dalinar in the last, in this chapter, and then in several previous chapters, Dalinar is just asking anyone who might know, a, Hey, do you know anything about my powers? Can you can you help me out here? He asks Ash, and he asks Syl. I think he asks somebody else too. Um, but I mean, that's what I would do in his situation. You know, like, can you tell me anything about my powers? He's just going around like the Stormfather's not telling me anything. So, can you tell me something about my powers? What what can I do? We didn't get to touch on that too much, but that was something that like really stood out to me and. Like, just that whole interaction, I don't know, what was interesting. So Shalash was like, uh, oh, like that was, what's his name? Ishar. Ishar. Um, that was his responsibility. You know, that's the, I assume that's the, uh, what's the order called again? Bondsmith. <laughs> Bondsmith. Bondsmith. Yes. That's the Bondsmith Herald, I assume. Yes. Um, and stuff. But we... Uh, so I've I've been really curious, like, are we going to get to meet this other Herald? That's one that we definitely, as far as I know, we definitely haven't seen. If, if, they, if, that character, if this Herald is introduced, then I'm sure Trevor will have, like, eight times that he's like, remember this? And it's someone we walked well, by. I'm, and I'm about them, to, you know? I'm about to do that for you. So, uh, okay. Uh, there's a Teravangian interlude in Oathbringer where Teravangian's like, oh yeah, the, the God priest in, uh, what, Elliot, help me with the, the Tukar, co- I want to say. Thank you. The God priest of Tukar is Ishar. And they reiterate that for you either in this, either in chapter 19 or there's a, uh, one of the previous chapters where they, they say Ishar is the crazy, like ruler who's just attacking anybody who walks in. Doesn't matter if they're singer or human or whatever. So that's right next to a where they're going. Um, and, uh, Ishar is over there. So he's the, he's the leader of Takar. Well, that's exciting. Um, at least about him, though. It seems like our heralds aren't really that helpful in regard to a lot of this stuff. Um, Which I actually Ash think is, is, the is most so funny. Uh, like, this whole time, like up until the end of Words of Radiance, you, you're, you referenced, you know, the heralds, and, you know, like, there's divine beings of the past, and then it, uh, yeah. half of Oathbringer, they're just like, oh, we need to find our heralds, they can help us. They're supposed to, you know, return and help and teach us, and then they find them. They're they're all just crazy. And they're the yeah, they're they just are like mumbling like craziness to themselves like the whole time, or they're it's actively just... trying to kill you before you bond yeah. to Spren. <laughs> yeah, yeah, actually, though. So, um, oh, oh, uh, but what I was gonna say. So, long story short, Ash doesn't really help. Uh, Dalinar figure out his powers, but 
we see that our bondsmith can work in combination with the other orders. We haven't seen any applications of that except for the light weavers. I'm actually uh, really surprised I forgot to bring that up in our last episode. But him, uh, Delinar and Shalon basically together create a like live map of basically Roshar. Like the, the, mm-hmm. it's, it's it's a big area and they like can tally up troop numbers and see everything and like it's that I thought that was so cool. In the fact, knowing that he can do something with each order of Knights Radiant has me extremely excited, and I can't wait to figure out what all it is. They said they haven't really made any other breakthroughs, um, but that got me really excited. It's not at all about our interludes here, but um, that that is my note uh, about that moving forward. I'm really excited as well to see what else Dalinar can do with, especially with other orders, because part of what we do seem to pick up on here in these interludes is that Bondsmiths seem to be maybe kind of at the center of a lot of things. I think it's Syl at the end of her interlude drops a little, you know, lore dump on Dalinar is like, oh yeah, Bondsmiths, they were responsible for tying the heralds to braze and bringing the humans to roshar and oh yeah the the nile bond that was created by bondsmith like just throwing out all these like whoa oh, okay downer's not really learning how to use his powers but he seems to be learning that his powers are at the center of a lot of what kind of we know is the key elements and and things that are going on which begs the question for me at least if Nohadon was a bondsmith because he's tied to the nail nail bond and he predates the Knights Radiant because the Knights Radiant based their code off of the Way of Kings that would make a lot of sense I think yeah that's a good question my my thought that I'm thinking of now as well is we had a whole discussion last episode about our light weavers and how do we tell with their like oaths or whatever. Like it's different. Mm-hmm. And I also don't know at all with our bondsmith here. Like what? What? Like level is he on? I don't even know. Like what level of heightening he's he's at. I want to say two. That's my thought is like two or like we haven't seen anything big. No, it's three. It's three. So is three his perpendicularity that he pulled out? Yes. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. So he says one and two at the end of Words of Radiance. He he says the first ideal of everybody's the the Mm -hmm. nice radiant one. And then he says the second one, like in the same paragraph. Um, because he knows it, and the Stormfather says it's accepted. And then, at the end of Oathbringer, if I must, if I must rise, I will. If I must fall, I will rise each time a better man. Is his is his third ideal? Oh, okay, okay. So, so it is at least these like ideals, though. It's different from the Lightweavers and stuff. But I had a thought about that for a second. I was like, I don't know if we know 
any of that, so, yeah. Anything else from this interlude before we talk about Jean Not? All right. So, a couple things to get out of this Jean Not interlude. She is sending a spren to bond with probably Marais, but not necessarily Marais. Um, she does make that caveat to the spren as it's leaving. Uh, but that's tying back to the Shallan uh deal that Shalon has with Marais and John Knott that Marais wants a corrupted spren to bond. Specifically a corrupted spren. Why? Who knows? But that that's part of that. And it deliberately doesn't tell you what type of spren this is. So if you could guess at an order, what what do you guys think uh Marais ordered from John Knott to Bond? Oh, he would. Uh, he would definitely want one of the teleportation ones that can go in uh, Shadesmar, right? Yes. So maybe like L Scholar. The only, the only idea I have is he specifically says, "Light weavers fascinate me," um, which is his yeah is his phrase to say I have a a spy in the light weavers to to spy mm -hmm. on you, so don't get out of line. So it might. He might be trying to be a light weaver himself. Yeah. I I mean I believe it. I think those are good guesses. I don't think I have a better one. The only part of this that I noticed on was it there was specific emphasis on this spren not just being your normal spren. There was a reference to like this was a one of her most precious creations, I think is the the phrasing of it. So it seems like this might be a, I don't know, I guess this is a question that I have. What makes this spread different? Aside from the fact that it's corrupted or touched by Shah Anat, what, what makes it more precious than the rest of her spread that she has? I feel like we didn't learn enough from our Jean not point of view. There's just not that much here and there yeah. could be a lot, but there's not really. I agree. Cause this is the first like real perspective we've seen from an unmade, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like that's, that's kind of, kind of wild, but so we know that she is, we, we learn a little bit. We learn that Jean Ott is halfway in the cognitive realm and halfway in the physical realm. Mm-hmm. Kind of this weird, like, halfway. And I think, I don't remember if, if if it says this or not, but kind of feeling like Jean kind of feels like she just, like, wants to belong. I don't know if that's right at all. I could entirely be speculating. But, but it's, like, this weird dynamic of being stuck between two realms. I'm sure that gets uncomfortable. I don't know. Um, and she also, we learned that our different unmade have very differing levels of, like, intelligence and stuff, which mm -hmm. was interesting. Like, she says the thrill is very basic, like, simple-minded. Um, and Jana, and I think she says, is it... Moilock? Or one of the other ones is is particularly crafty and... 
and things like that. Um, so, so that I thought that was interesting, but yeah, with it, we didn't learn a, a whole a whole lot. She she has an offhand comment. Uh, this is at the very end of the chapter that if Odium found out what I was doing, he would unmake me again. Which mm. leads me to think that at one time she was not unmade, whatever that means, mm -hmm. which would then also lead me to the conclusion that the rest of the unmade have been whatever that it is and were at one time normal spren of Roshar and Odium has found them and unmade them whatever that means, and a negative connotation there. The confusing part of that for me is it seems like Ja'anat is afraid of being unmade by Odium, but if she already isn't unmade, then wouldn't unmaking her just be the state she's already in? That's her second ideal. <laughs> yeah, unmade I, squared. Yeah, right? So I, I was confused by that. Is it simply because of the name unmade? It, it seems like Shauna is being is afraid of being, you know, erased from existence or killed or or something along those lines. But the the phrase she uses is "He will unmake me." She is an unmade already. I yeah, confusing. I have I have no idea. Odium plans on taking her with him to Amul. Odium is physically going to Emul to fight this battle that's about to happen. I assume Odium is going to go help his Yakaved soldiers um that are about to that are about to turn to his Teravangian soldiers. He doesn't have the thrill anymore though, so I'm not quite sure how he's gonna do that. But he's taking Jean Knot, so maybe that has something to do with it. And then um, you guys already knew this going into this interlude, but for anyone who didn't listen to Cosmere 101, we get some definitions of vessel and shard when it comes to odium, where odium is odium, both the vessel and the shard are influenced by both. So the shard is passion, basically, but then the vessel is kind of guiding that passion. And so all of the motivations that Odium has is uh, fueled by the original vessel, which I don't remember his name at the moment. But The other nugget that I pulled out of this chapter was that the sibling Jean-Not talks about the sibling as her cousin. She specifically mentions that the sibling is the slumbering child of honor and cultivation, which is interesting. We've, we've kind of looked at like Spren at that level as like the storm father being, you know, very closely tied to honor. Mm-hmm. A child of honor, perhaps. And then we have the Night Watcher, who's kind of the equivalent for cultivation. 
we've gotten it, hints that the sibling is like a spren on that type of level. But now we're being told that the sibling is of honor and cultivation, not necessarily tied to one. At least that's what I'm reading into this. So that that was an interesting another, you know, six words that you can draw a lot of stuff out of. I just drew more out of it, but Paul, do you want to chime in before I talk? No, go for it. Okay, so what's Honor's original vessel's name? Tanavast? Tanavast. Mm -hmm. What is Cultivation's vessel's name? Oh, gosh. Coravellium Avast. Okay. There is a last name there, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tanavast is one word, but go with me here. There's Corvellium Avast and Tanavast. And if the sibling is the child of them two, what? Kaladins has a title of child of Tanavast, mm-hmm. which is specifically different than son of honor, son of Tanavast. The Stormfather addresses mm-hmm. him as both, but not necessarily interchangeable, as in. He is both, and that they mean different things. Um, That's as far as I got. What is? What does that mean? I, you think Kaladin is the sibling, or related to the sibling? Like, what does that even? I don't understand. I don't know if I understood at the end what you were getting at. So. If the sibling is the child of honor and cultivation, oh, is, oh. is what she says, yeah. right? Is what John Knott mm-hmm. says. The shards. That she's the, she's, or sorry, the sibling yes. is the child of the shards, honor and cultivation. But then Kaladin is the son of Tanavast somehow. I mean, I'm not assuming that Liren is Tanavast by any means, but... Mm-hmm. Um, whatever that means, there has to be something there. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what that means, but that's just what was running around in my head. I've kind of taken son of Tanavast to mean almost like spiritual successor. Like you are the, you are a champion of, uh, this has connotations (laughs) to our discussion. We just had that I'm not intending, but champion of honor. You are a a you are a person who's furthering honor's cause in today's yeah. day and age. You are a son of Tanavast, and that when we talk about the sibling, I think we're talking about a spren. Which, yeah, it seems like two different yeah. categories to me. Right. I feel like maybe we're crossing wires to try and connect those. Although maybe not. Maybe there's a connection. No, I I completely agree with you that they do seem separate but there's uh, yeah i don't know yeah i um oh i thought of a really good input thing here and then promptly forgot i hate it i hate that feeling oh, it is actually the worst oh, 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 oh i remember what it was um i was by one of the best feelings yeah yes literally <laughs> um 
you know, when Dalinar, like, Dalinar kind of compares himself to the Sunmaker a good bit. I, I think it's kind of, like, the same expression with okay. calling Kaladin, like, a son of Tanavast is, like, y- you, you, you have resembling characteristics of this cool yes. old person in history. But You're the, I, the modern reincarnation of this person. A, a yeah. F- sort of, yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, I could get on get on board with that. I knowing Brandon Sanderson though, I do feel like Child of <laughs> Tanavas has literal connotation, which is what I'm sticking to in my head. Yeah. But well, I'll I'll have to wait on that. All right, interlude three. Teravangian. I mean, this is as far as interludes go. Not much happens in this interlude. He says goodbye to the diagram, both as a people group and as pages on a, on, in a book, he says, all right, we're going to betray Dalinar. When we get to Amul, Yakoved is going to turn and I'm going to stay here. Um, just to see through the plan and everybody else, you guys are going to escape to Garbranth. Uh, wish me luck. And that's the whole, that's the whole interlude. Pretty much. I felt resistant to this interlude. I it, it's kind of it's kind of strange. I felt like the author is like trying to sucker me into feeling bad for Teravangian. Yes. Like huh? here here's an emotional farewell scene for Teravangian who has poured his life into saving the world and off he goes to his imminent death. And I'm just sitting over here like no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to feel bad for him. It, nope. Nope. Yep, nope. No, that's, this, that's really funny, actually. Yeah, go ahead. This yeah. was where they introduced the, like, what Teravangian makes a comment, and he's like, I would kill no one more than need, like, I wouldn't let any one person die that doesn't need to die for this. And it's like, okay, th- th- thanks. But you're already killing hundreds of thousands. It's it's in the same breath that he's like, oh yeah, my hospitals. He calls them hospitals, by the way, still. Yes. Which yeah. actually like that that word <laughs> in his mind, like he he genuinely thinks that it's justifiable to call them that. Anyway. He's mm-hmm. like, Oh yeah, I should probably disband those. The Anyway, yeah. like <sighs> Yeah. You're right, Elliot. They did a good job of, like, making this like, oh, oh, bye, Teravangian. Like, bye, bye, farewell, best, best of luck. You know, but that's not that's not the case at all. Is uh, prediction time? Is this going to happen the way Teravangian assumes, or is something else going to happen before Teravangian dies? I'm not sure. I feel like sometimes I've kind of gotten Brandon Sanderson's number and I've been able to, you know, predict a few things kind of spot on. I'm not getting any of the the vibes this time. I, I do not know. I don't feel like we've been necessarily in a situation like this so spelled out. Like, I, I feel like we know exactly what's going to happen. It's been very clearly spelled out that we've seen both sides of it. We've seen Dalinar planning. We've seen Teravangian planning. We've seen Shaw not planning. We've seen all these people 
They have their plan. We know what everyone's trying to do. It feels like we're leading into something that should be exactly how we expect it to be. But the fact that all of that is spelled out so clearly makes me second guess it. Right. That because it's been so telegraphed to us, that makes me want to say no, that it's not going to happen this, the way we think it's going to. So I, I, I don't know. I will say there's one line in, in this chapter, in this interlude, that did make me wonder. The guy that administers the intelligence test to Teravangian mm-hmm. yep. is like, oh, but I have to come with you so that we can keep doing your tests. And Teravangian's like, nope, doesn't matter anymore. I, I think that's even the actual line where he's like, nope, I don't want a single more person to die. You need to go back with everyone else. Yep. Mm-hmm. I wonder... I wonder if that is a chink here that might actually enable something. Teravangian ha- has just shrugged off his, his check, his check and balance that he put in place for him. He's about to go to what he is sure is going to be his death. What if it's not his death? And then what if he has another brilliant day? What if he has another like diagram level intelligence day and decides... I don't want to die today. I have a brilliant new plan. Here's all of this. And like Teravangian is the twist in all of this and does something unexpected. That would be pretty nuts. I didn't actually think about that, like about him sending away his, um, his little intelligence test. Secretary. Um, as being important. My guess, like, going forward, was more simple. It, it, my thoughts were, like, he's probably going to try, you know, to pull pull the rug out from under Dalinar. But I I mean, Dalinar is very wary of Teravangian right now, so I don't envision Teravangian being that successful. Right. Um, I guess especially since we have over a book and a half left in our series here, I'm going to kind of assume... That this isn't the nail in the coffin. Um, this is very early in the book for a this level mm-hmm. of event. Like this is the stuff I would normally expect to be like the start of a Sanderlanch. Mm-hmm. This is part one. This is the end of part one of this book. So either so we're, we're headed wait. for... We'll have to wait till part four to, to see the rest <laughs> of it. Yeah, we're about to go on a tangent for, for the next 600 yeah. pages. Maybe. It, I think either we're headed for a book that's very differently paced than what we've read before, or maybe this is more evidence if we want to really try and think about this meta-wise. Are we going to... Yeah, is is the rug going to get pulled out from someone and, and this doesn't even happen? We don't even get a confrontation here because something you know happens and, and the book slows down from its fairly fast start and we don't get the, the big events. I don't know. Any more thoughts? Just one. I alluded to this at the beginning. Dalinar seems to have a recurring problem. Again, depending on how this goes down, maybe maybe this doesn't happen the way we think it's about to happen. But just about every single book here, we've had an entire army defect 
and turn against Dalinar. We have yes. <laughs> Sadius's army at the tower, which is Wave Kings. Words of Radius, did we have an army turning against Dalinar? Only thing you have is Amram betraying him for a shard blade. Oh, yeah. Right. And a yeah, shard blade I guess is it, worth an army, right? True. Hypothetically. Words of Radiance is the is the showdown with the Parshendi and the awakening of the Everstorm and all that, so no massive betrayal on that one. Okay. But then we get right back to it in Oathbringer with the entirety of the Alethi army under the command of Amaram betraying and turning against Dalinar. Now he's marching into battle with a, an entire Yaakoved army that is fully intending to turn against him and fight against him. Yeah. I see a theme, a recurring series of events. Is it Dalinar's fault? I mean, the, or is he just unlucky? Like the common denominator <laughs> is, is Dalinar, but is that just you know coincidence or is this? I mean, he's managed to survive each one and come out on top. So I wouldn't bet against him going into this, but at the same time. I don't know if I'd want to be marching into battle with this guy. It seems like his friends turn on him a lot. Friends in quotes, I suppose. There's a, this is well, anything else before the end of the, the, the closeout here. Okay. So at the end of interlude three, Terry burns his copy of, the diagram he says it's pretty much irrelevant now we, we we've done it um we've saved carbronth the end there's something else in the diagram that hasn't been solved though right which is we talked the whole Ren whole renarin piece of it right right renarin's a huge piece of this and so either teravangian has that part memorized and or it's irrelevant now and like it didn't go that way that he thought it would and run and that whole piece that whole prophecy piece is just gone because the way it got revealed to us was Teravangian noticed something that Odium did not right, right. Yep. he sees something that talks about Renarin and supposedly Odium doesn't know about it but yeah, you're right. Teravangian does seem to be tossing that aside as if it doesn't matter anymore. Perhaps. Yeah, there's... I, I, I don't know if that goes anywhere, but that's just what I was thinking. Alright, any closing thoughts for episode 107? Excited as usual, to see what happens in part two. I was going to say the exact same thing. As usual, I'm very excited to dig into the next uh, next section here. Yeah, me too. Let's close this episode and talk about part two of Rhythm of War next week. Thanks for joining me. Farewell. Bye-bye. <laughs>